1 Corinthians 4. So I'll read the first five verses. That will be what we consider this morning. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And we'll stop there. So hey, we're back. We're back in 1 Corinthians. Isn't this wonderful? As we start looking at Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth after a what was originally designed to be a one-week break turned into a five-week break, and now here we are. So back in, the ch- back in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. Uh, but since we've been gone from 1 Corinthians for so while, just a brief recap to get us back up to speed. Uh, Paul wrote this letter from the city of Ephesus near the end of his, uh, his three-year stay there, sometime around 54 to 55 A.D., so this would be at the end of his third missionary journey. And if you recall, he wrote this letter for two main purposes. There are two main motivations for writing this letter. The first one was he received a report from those in Chloe's household regarding some issues in the church, mainly divisions and then some other moral problems going on in the church, which we will see in chapters 5 and 6. So some issues in the church. And then the second reason why he wrote this is because he also received a letter from the church in Corinth, from the believers there who had a bunch of questions regarding certain doctrines, regarding marriage and singleness, regarding uh, spiritual gifts, and regarding Christian liberty, and regarding uh, the proper etiquette at the Lord's Supper, regarding the resurrection and all these things. So the letter to the first letter to Corinth kind of breaks down into two main chunks. Chapters one through six deal with the report from Chloe's household, chapter seven through sixteen-ish, uh, like you know, the first few verses in sixteen deal with the, the questions that the church in Corinth has raised. And then after a brief greeting in First Corinthians one, in which he commends the Corinthians for their giftedness and how the testimony about Christ was confirmed in them, Paul immediately then gets to work on the primary issue of divisions in the church. Now, of all the various topics that Paul deals with in the letter to the 1 Corinthians, the issue of divisions takes up the biggest chunk. Okay, It takes up the biggest section because it goes from chapter 1, verse 10, all the way to the end of chapter 4 is the is Paul dealing with divisions in the church. And divisions are, among other things, contrary to one's profession of faith in Christ. Because, as Paul will say, Christ is not divided. Christ does not come in parts, right? Christ is not something you buy from Ikea and you have to assemble, and then you have, as always, you have some little spare parts left over. Christ is not divided. 
neither should his body be divided, the church. Divisions in the church are also contrary to the message of the gospel itself. Following specific teachers, for whatever reasons they were following these specific teachers, betrays a worldly mindset. It betrays a, a, a mindset or a worldview that values the teachers based on their, their rhetorical skills, based on their looks, based on how well they present themselves, and not on the central meat of the gospel, which is the message of the cross is what, divi- uh, what unites Christians uh, together. Divisions in the church also reflect a carnal mindset, a fleshly mindset, a, an immature mindset, as we saw in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul says, But brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people. In other words, I could not address you as mature Christians. Why? Because you've got all these divisions in the church. I have to step back, I have to treat you like children. All right, if you've had children, which many of us have, and if they are at a certain age and you expect a certain level of behavior from them and they don't do that, and they kind of revert back to what you would consider a lesser level of behavior, you're, like, you're acting like a child. Why are you acting like a child? You're, you're 16 years old or you're 14 years old, however old you are. Why are you acting like you're 8 or 7 or 6? That's what Paul says here in chapter 3. He's like, I have to address you as people of the flesh. I do address you as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for you're not ready for it. And even now you're not ready. So this idea of divisions in the church reflects a carnal, fleshly, immature mindset. And then finally, uh, the last half of chapter 3, and as we go into chapter 4, divisions in the church are contrary to the ministry of the apostles. Because the apostles, rather than celebrities to be lifted up on a pedestal, the apostles are servants. That's what Paul says in uh, chapter 3. We are servants. Look at verse 5. What what then is Apollos? What then is Paul? We are servants through whom you believed. So they serve the Lord, who is the head of the church. They are not the ones to be elevated. Christ is the one to be exalted. Christ is the one to be elevated, not the teachers. And then he goes into a lengthy metaphor about how uh, the the ministers in the church, they are those who plant and those who water. Or they are the ones who build, lay the foundation, and then those who build upon the foundation. So we are servants. We are planters. We are waterers. We are foundation layers. We are builders who are all working together to serve the Lord, to serve the church. So as we come now into 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1-5, through Paul is going to sort of bring his discussion on divisions in the church to a close. That's what chapter 4 is. And he's going to do so by taking another look at at the ministry of the apostles here. So he's going to restate the theme in, verse, in chapter 4 that we are servants. In fact, he goes on to say we are stewards. And that's a specific word that has a specific uh, connotation as regards to ministry. And then he's going to say you know, in this passage here that stewards are trustworthy, stewards are judged by the Lord, and stewards are commended by God. So that's 
how I divide the passage, verses 1 through 2. Stewards are to be trustworthy, verses 3 through 4. Stewards are judged by the Lord. And then verse 5, stewards are rewarded or commended by God. All right, let's first look at stewards are trustworthy in verses 1 through 2. And again, if you recall back to chapter 3, which we looked at a little bit briefly, Paul rebukes the uh, Corinthians for their divisions. He says that he could not address them as spiritual people, as people filled with the Spirit. But he has to address them as carnal, as fleshly people, as people who are not guided by the Spirit, as infants in Christ. And he says that divisions here are a sign then of walking according to the flesh, not according to the Spirit. If you recall uh, Galatians chapter 5, in which Paul talks about those who walk according to the flesh and those who walk according to the Spirit, in that description of those who walk according to the flesh, you see listed among those the characteristics of walking according to the flesh, divisions, contentions, strife, all these things that, that separate, that cause divisions, that cause separations in the body of Christ are all manifestations or works of the flesh. They are a sign of spiritual immaturity. They are a sign of someone who has not yet grown to maturity in Christ. So then Paul then goes on to say that he and Apollos were servants. We are people sent by God to minister to you, to minister God's word to you, to, in a sense, serve you. We are intermediaries. We bring the Word of God to you. We serve the Word of God to you. We are not special, right? The word servant in chapter 3 is diakonos, which is, you get the word deacon from that, and that word is also used to describe someone who waits on tables. So if you go to the restaurant, you're not going to exalt the waiter or the waitress. You may give them a tip. You may give them a very generous and healthy tip. But you're not going to exalt the waitress because the waitress, all the waitress or the waiter did was take your order, give it to the cook, and then bring the food back to you, and then occasionally fills your glass with water or coffee or whatever is whatever you're drinking. Okay? You don't exalt the waiter or the waitress. Now, here as we come to verse one of chapter four, Paul returns to this servant theme. Look again at verse 1. This is how you should regard us as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, the word here for servant is not diakonos. Okay? Just like in English, Greek has several synonyms that mean effectively the same thing. And sometimes they're translated into the English translations as the same word. So you might be thinking, okay, servant, that means diakonos. But in this case, it's not the word diakonos. It is the word huperites, huperites, which literally means an under rower. Okay? You're like, what does that mean? Well, I'll, I'll, hopefully I'll explain it to you. All right, in, in these boats that they would, that they would, that they would uh, use to go across the sea, you would have people that would row. You know, when you get close to the shore, you drop the sails and you start rowing. And you would have different levels of rowers. You would have the under rower would be like the lowest level of rowers in the boat. And they're the guys that just, all they do is just, you know, as the guy's beating the drums, boom, boom, boom. You're kind of rowing to the, to the, to the rhythm to, to get the, the boat going. So Paul says, me, Apollos, Peter, 
We're under rowers, okay? We are the lowest level. We are the guys at the bottom of the boat rowing this boat to shore. Okay, don't row, row. Yeah, not, okay, I'm not thinking of row, row, row your boat, though. We are the guys, the under rowers. We are the subordinate rowers. Now, metaphorically, that word huperite speaks to someone who works with their hands. So a handy guy, someone who, who labors with their hands. And the point Paul here may, is making here earlier still stands. If Paul and the other apostles like, like Peter and, and John and, and the other people that serve with the apostles like Apollos and Timothy and Titus, if they are servants, why would you split the church over people who are servants? Why would you cause divisions over people who are servants? That's the point Paul is making. It's foolish to divide the church over servants. It's foolish to divide the church over people who are called to serve the Lord Jesus Christ by ministering His Word, ministering the sacraments to the people of God. And Paul says, moreover, that we are not only are we servants, we are stewards of the mysteries of God. And here's another term that Paul likes to use to describe his apostolic ministry as a steward, as a steward. And here the word steward translates the Greek word oikonomos. Okay, now as I say that, maybe you might hear the word economy, which is, that's what we get the word from. I mean, literally, if you were to break it down, oikos means home, namos means law. So if you were just to kind of try to interpret it based on the parts of the words, it means house law, okay? And that's kind of what economics is, right? Economics is how you balance your, your budget. It's how you determine, you know, what to sell, what to trade, how to, how to manage your household. Well, a steward would be an economist. He would be a guy who manages the household. He would be a guy who manages the wealth and resources of a wealthy landowner or a wealthy uh, person in society, He's a, he oversees and manages the affairs of another. Think of Joseph in the book of Genesis, right? When he was sold into slavery, he was sold to Potiphar. And then because the Lord was with him and the Lord blessed him, what happened to Joseph in Potiphar's house? He became, yeah, he said, I, you know, as, you know, except for Potiphar, you know, I, you know, everything is under my, my command. Everything is under my control, except for Potiphar, who is my, my boss. He is my, my, my master. But I oversee everything in his household, except his wife, who then tried to, you know, well, that's another story. But a steward is one who manages the affairs of another. Now, while the steward was a servant of the master of the house, he was also a chief of the servants. So flip over, keep your finger here in 1 Corinthians and turn to Luke 12. I'll start reading in verse 35. So Luke 12, 35. And in Luke, 20, uh, Luke 12, 35, Jesus 
uh, speaking to his disciples, says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And Peter said, Lord, are you telling us this parable for all of us to hear, or, uh, for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager or steward? whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect In an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. So here he's using the idea of a steward to talk about readiness. He's talking about the return of the Lord. And a faithful steward is one who is working and who is continuing to serve the master of the house well, regardless if the master is there or not, because he doesn't know when the master will return. The unfaithful steward is the one who says, well, my master's not here. I'm going to beat the servants. (laughs) I'm going to exalt. I'm going to exert my dominance over the other servants. I'm going to beat them, treat them horribly. I'm going to kick up my feet. I'm going to lay back. And then that's when the master comes home and sees the lazy servant doing all these things. And he says, cut him in pieces. So a steward has to be faithful. A steward is one who serves and and manages the household well. Now back to 1 Corinthians 4. In the case of church ministry, uh, the ministers are stewards, as Paul says here, of the mysteries of God. They are entrusted with this great treasure, this great treasure to manage it and to serve it to the church. So in a sense, as ministers and and elders and even deacons and and all pastors and so on and so forth, as we are stewards, God entrusts to us His Word. He entrusts to us the care of His flock and we are to serve by ministering these, the resources that God has given to us, that which we uh, manage. We are stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, we've looked at this word mystery before. Uh, in the New Testament, particularly in Paul, mystery speaks of something that has been previously hidden and is now revealed. Uh, just... Uh, and here, uh, it most certainly refers to the gospel and the content of the gospel, because that seems to be the, the context with which Paul is speaking here. But it, it's more than just the gospel, because we see mysteries throughout the New Testament, right? 
You have the mystery of the kingdom of heaven that, that Jesus tells in parables in Matthew 13. He says, to you, as he speaks to the disciples, to you has been revealed the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And each of those mysteries is wrapped up in the points of these parables, how the, how the kingdom is something that starts off small, like a mustard seed and grows very large, or how the kingdom is going to be mixed. It's going to be made up of weeds and wheat, or the kingdom is like a treasure in a field that when one finds it, he gives up everything he owns in order to obtain the kingdom. Another mystery that we saw in our study through the book of Romans in Romans 11.25 is the mystery of the partial hardening or the partial blindness of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. You know, again, answering that question that Romans 9 through 11 answers, which is if no one is separated from the love of God, Romans 8, why does it feel like most of God's chosen people have not believed? And he goes on and says, well, in Romans 9, he says, well, that's part of God's sovereign plan. In Romans 10, he says, Israel was responsible to believe, but they didn't. And then in Romans chapter 11, he says, this is also to further God's purposes because this partial hardening on the Israelites is to allow the fullness of the Gentiles to come in. He says their hardening, their disbelief, their rejection has been to the benefit of the Gentiles. And then he goes on to say, now, as Gentiles come to faith, that will drive the Jews to jealousy, and then they will want to come back. So he says there's, there's this partial hardening until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Another mystery is in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, in which Paul says the mystery which is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So our union with Christ is also described as a mystery, and there are others. There are other mysteries here. And here, Paul says, we are the stewards of these mysteries. We are the ones who are entrusted with this treasure. Think of what Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 4. We have this, this treasure, the treasure of the gospel, the treasure of the new covenant, in an earthen jar, in a clay vessel. So the, the servant is nothing. But what he ministers, what he stewards, and what he faithfully uh, ministers to the people of God, that is the treasure. Not the minister who is just a clay vessel. It is the, the message of the cross, the word of the gospel as that goes forth. Now, the most important quality of a steward is trustworthiness, verse 2. Moreover, it is required, it is necessary that stewards, that they be found faithful. Again, think of that Luke 12 passage, right? The faithful steward is the one who is faithfully carrying out his tasks, even when his master is not there watching him, right? Isn't that the, you know, the, the, the measure of one's character is what you do when no one's looking, right? Isn't that what they say? It's like you could tell the character of somebody with what they do when no one's watching, Problem is, there's never no one watching, right? Because God's watching. <laughs> but the point is that, you know, are you one who, is, who has integrity? Do you, are you the same person when no one's watching than when everyone is watching? That's the point. So trustworthiness. And again, the, the root word for trustworthiness is the word pistis, from which we get the word faith or trust. Uh, one who has been entrusted with the good the goods of the master must prove himself a trustworthy servant. 
I already mentioned this example of Joseph in Genesis and how Potiphar made him chief over his household. Uh, I mean, you could, you know, same thing with Daniel, right? I mean, Daniel was elevated to practically second in command of the kingdom of Babylon because of his, the favor he found with God, but also because of his trustworthiness, his, his ability to serve the, the king even though he was in exile. And the same with apostles and ministers within the church. Being a minister, being an elder, being a deacon, being anyone that serves in the church in an official capacity is a high calling. It's a high calling because you're called to be an under-shepherd to the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. We are entrusted to serve the flock of God. We are entrusted with the mysteries of God to administer the means of grace to the people of God. And while we're all held accountable for our own response to the gospel, the minister plays a big role in making sure that the word of God is rightly handled. Right? It is my task. You've called me here to serve you in this capacity. It is my task to take the mysteries of God and rightly handle this word and to present it to you faithfully each and every week. It is not for me to display my great rhetorical skills, of which I don't think I have too many, but my great rhetorical skills, my great flair or whatever, it is not a popularity contest. It is, do I faithfully minister the Word of God to you? Do I, do I, make, do I take the effort to try to expound the Word and draw out what is there and not try to read into it what I want to see there? That is one who is a faithful steward. And if I mishandle the word of God and lead some astray, then I'm held responsible for that. I mean, you're held responsible for that too, <laughs> right? It's not, you know, you can't say, well, my pastor taught me wrong. It's not, that's not an excuse. But if someone is led astray because I'm teaching some kind of weird novel error, I'm also responsible for that, right? That's why James says in James chapter 3, not many of you ought to be teachers. Why? Because you're going to be held accountable to how, how you present this word. Right? You know, you are responsible for the spiritual welfare of the church. And if you teach something wrong and they go astray, yeah, they should be able to be like noble Bereans and check the word and say, you know, pastor, you're wrong here because the word says this. But not everyone does that. Right? So, you know, sometimes you just kind of, some people just kind of blindly trust the pastor with whatever he says. Like, well, pastor said it. Okay. You know, that, that, that settles it. It's like, no, 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 don't, don't, don't lay that on me. Okay? Yeah, I may say it, but I can be wrong. You know, and I, I try not to be wrong. I try to, 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 to make sure that if it's a difficult passage, I try to say, look, this is difficult, uh, like this morning's passage will be. As a steward, you must be faithful and trustworthy. Secondly, stewards are judged by the Lord, verses 3 and 4. Now, because Paul sees himself as a steward of the mysteries of God and as a servant of Christ, he says he's not concerned by being judged by the Corinthians. Verse 3, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Now, okay, let's try to understand this properly. Okay, Paul's not saying, I don't care what you think about me in that sense, like arrogantly. It's like, you're, you're, you know, you're too inferior to judge me properly. That's not what he's saying. 
All right, this is not the arrogance on the part of Paul, quite the opposite. Uh, again, the issue with Corinth was divisions over ministers and the factions that were sort of rising up because of people who were followers of Paul or people who were followers of Apollos or Peter. So here, the Corinthians were passing judgment on Paul. They were passing judgment on Apollos or on Peter. So they were saying, some would say, well, I like Paul because of this reason. Or others would say, no, 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 no. Apollos, he's much better than Paul because he's an eloquent speaker, mighty in the Scriptures. And others were saying, ah, I like Peter because Peter's down to earth. He speaks my language. And he's so much better than that highfalutin Paul who's always using these big you know, $60 theological words that I can never understand and, and so on and so forth. We know that if we consider both Corinthian letters that Paul had some in Corinth who did not see him favorably. Particularly if you read 2 Corinthians. Paul is very open and honest about some of the issues that he had with some in Corinth because they were, you know, they were kind of criticizing Paul for this reason or that reason or the other reason. So Paul says, look, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In other words, Paul as a steward, he's not answerable to those whom he serves. He's answerable to his master, right? That's what Paul is saying here. It's like, if I'm going to be judged for my trustworthiness and my faithfulness, it is going to be God who judges me, not you, particularly because of the context of the Corinthian church where they were dividing and judging the, the ministers based on worldly reasons, based on their own worldly understanding of these things. Again, it's not to say that the people in the church cannot say, no, he's teaching wrong. He's teaching error. That's different than what they were doing here in Corinth. They were not being uh, discerning. They were being fleshly. They were being carnal in Corinth. So as a steward, Paul is ultimately answerable to his master, Jesus Christ. And it is required of the steward that he or she be found trustworthy, not by the fellow servants, but by the master. And Christians in general and ministers in particular should strive to be well-spoken of by others. We don't want to just be abrasive. We don't want to just say, here's my way, you have to take it or else get out of here or anything like that. We don't want to be abrasive. We don't want to be offensive. We want to be well-spoken of by others. A good reputation is important. But Paul and other ministers and other Christians are ultimately answerable to the Lord, not to other people. That's why Paul says, it's a small thing that I should be judged by you. And Paul isn't going to sit here, in other words, Paul isn't going to sit there and change his message just because some of the people in the Corinthian church didn't like the way he spoke or didn't like the way he looked or didn't like the way, whatever the reason is. He's not going to change his message because the Corinthians don't like it. We are to preach the word, as Paul will tell Timothy, in season and out of season, whether you want to hear it or whether you don't want to hear it, which is why, at least the way I like to preach is I like to take a book and work my way through it. That way I don't skip anything, right? I mean, if I were to bounce around from passage to passage each week, I could avoid certain topics I don't want to teach on. Like, you know, no one likes to give the sermon on giving, right? No one likes to give the sermon on giving because it sounds like you're one of these shyster pastors 
in these big cities asking for money. You know, it's like, and don't put, you know, I don't want to hear clanking in the plate. I want some of that folding money. Give me that folding money, you know, because pastor needs a new Cadillac or whatever, you know. You know, so, you know, you know, or, you know, perhaps you don't want to give the message on, you know, women submitting to their husbands because you're uncomfortable with that passage. So, no, I mean, that's why I preach the way I preach. And when I hit a subject I don't like, it's like, okay, well, you're going to get it anyway. And hopefully I do a good job giving it to you. So that's the point. We preach in season, we preach out of season. In fact, Paul says, not only am I not worried about being judged by you, he says, I don't even judge myself. The, effect of a, uh, the mark of an effective ministry isn't whether or not the people like the minister. That's a mark. It's not the mark. And the mark of an effective ministry isn't even whether or not the minister approves of his own ministry. <laughs> right? The mark of an effective ministry is the faithfulness of the servant to the Lord and to the mysteries of God, stewarding these mysteries well. And Paul continues now in verse 4. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. And Paul says here, look, I'm not aware of any you know, faults or any weaknesses in my own ministry. But that doesn't mean anything. Just because I'm not aware of anything doesn't mean that there are not holes in my ministry. He says, look, I'm not aware of any faults in my ministry, but that means nothing. It's so easy to justify ourselves, right? I didn't do anything wrong. You know, I, I did everything I was supposed to do. It's, it's you people that are the, the, the problem, right? Um, it's so easy to self-justify, to rationalize away our shortcomings. Oh, I had a busy week, so I didn't, I didn't have a good sermon this week or, or whatever. Paul says it matters not, right? It matters not whether we find fault in our own ministry. And it doesn't matter uh, if you try to judge me. He says, look, if I don't find any fault in my ministry, that doesn't acquit me. That doesn't justify me. That doesn't vindicate me. We cannot self-justify because we're limited fallen people. I can't see all. Sometimes I'm blind to some of my weaknesses. That's the point Paul is saying here. And he goes on and says, God is the ultimate judge of our ministry. His word is final. He is the one we must ultimately satisfy. And it's not that our own efforts can't merit anything with God. Rather, as stewards, we are answerable to him, not people and not ourselves. So then ultimately, the divisions in the church are foolish because the stewards are not answerable to the people in the church. They're servants of Christ and they're answerable to him alone. Okay, so now Paul concludes his little argument here in verse 5 where he says, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So since it is a very small thing that Paul should be judged by the Corinthians, and since Paul himself does not feel acquitted or qualified to judge himself, it makes little sense then to pronounce judgment 
before the time, as he says here. And here's how foolish it is to pronounce judgment before the time. Because we cannot see the motivations or, or the intentions of the ministers, right? You know, you can look at someone and you can see a minister and you can say, wow, he, well, he preaches well. He serves the church well. You know, everything that I see, everything that I hear looks wonderful. So you can kind of say, well, this is a good minister. This is a good servant of the Lord. But you don't know what the intentions of his heart are. You don't know what goes on behind closed doors. You can't tell what his motivations are. The reason why it's foolish for us to judge is because we can only judge based on external criteria, right? I can only judge based on what I see. And you can only judge me based on what you see in me. You don't know what the intentions or motivations of my heart are. So how eloquent of a speaker one is, how knowledgeable a teacher one is, how pious a minister appears, those are things that you can kind of see externally. But we don't see the motives of the heart. We don't see the intentions of the minister. You could have a situation in which you have the man with the most theological mind, uh, the most golden tongue, can also be full of pride and hiding secret sin. The flip side, of course, is that a lesser minister can have a humble heart and a true shepherd's touch for the church. Flip over to 1 Corinthians, please. We are in 1 Corinthians. Flip over to Philippians. Flip to Philippians. There you go. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. Because in the book of Philippians, Paul speaks about the joy that he has in the gospel. The joy that the gospel is going forth in the church and going forth in the world despite the motives of the preachers. So he says this in verses 12 through 18 of chapter 1. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ was proclaimed, and in that I rejoice." Now, I read this because not because it's completely analogous to what we see in 1 Corinthians, but what we see here is a case of the gospel going forth, yet the intentions and motivations of the ministers are mixed. Some are preaching the gospel out of love for Paul. Some are preaching the gospel out of envy for Paul. Now, in the case of Philippians, Paul is saying, I don't care because the gospel is going forth, right? And that's what brings me joy. Not the fact that some are preaching because, oh, Paul, he disqualified himself. He's in prison now. He must be a bad preacher. I'm going to go preach the gospel in his place. And Paul's like, as long as you're preaching the gospel faithfully, I don't care. And in that, I rejoice. But the point that's relevant for us is, as we see here, Paul acknowledges that some preach the gospel 
faithfully and some preach it with bad motivations. And that's the point. It's like you don't know the motivations of the heart. It is clear that there are those who minister the Word of God out of impure motives, whether that's for the praise and accolades or, or for more nefarious motives. It's clear that you cannot simply look at a minister and, and tell his effectiveness purely by the externals. You can flip back to 1 Corinthians 4 now. It's only the Lord who can faithfully judge anyone. That's why Paul says it makes little sense to pass judgment on ministers before the Lord comes. Now, we need to caution here because verse 5 here, Paul's not saying don't ever judge. Okay, He's not saying don't ever pass any kind of judgment. This is just like people who misunderstand Matthew 7.1, right? Don't judge lest you be judged. It's like, ah, you can't judge me. It's like, that's not what the verse means. <laughs> okay? Yeah. It, it means don't judge hypocritically. Right? Because he says with the measure that you use, that's the measure that's going to be used against you. So if you judge someone, oh, you didn't shine your shoes when you go to church, and that's kind of going to be the measure that's going to be used against you. It's like, well, look at your shoes. They're kind of dingy and every, whatever. That's a kind of a silly example, but that's the point. So people misunderstand Matthew 7.1 and people here misunderstand 1 Corinthians 4.5. Paul is cautioning against judging a minister presumptuously. Judging a minister according to the standards of the world. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. They were judging ministers and servants of God according to the standards of the world. Because it is the Lord who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. The Lord knows He can look at each minister who's ever served in the church, in the history of the church, and He can tell faithfully whether that person has served humbly or whether that person is serving out of a heart of pride, whether they, are, you know, whether they want to abuse the sheep or whether they like to feed the sheep, all these things. The Lord discloses what is hidden and makes light what is in darkness. It's kind of like what Jesus himself says in Matthew 10. You don't need to turn there, but in Matthew 10, 26... Jesus says, have no fear of them, that is, the, the leaders, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. So in the, in the judgment, when Christ comes, all the hidden motives, all the hidden uh, motivations and intentions of the hearts of everyone will become known on judgment day, and then it will be determined whether you were a faithful steward or not. So in the final analysis, isn't that what Christians here, we as Christians should strive for to receive our commendation from God? Because that's what we see here in verse 5. It is then and only then when the Lord shines His light on the light of truth on the last day that we will receive our commendation from God. The reward that we get, we should get from God Himself, right? You know, again, going back to the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus criticizes the righteousness of the Pharisees, he says the Pharisees pray in public so that they get their accolades from people. Right? The Pharisees give in public by, you know, taking all their, you know, taking the coin, you know, if you have that coin jar at home that you put your pennies and nickels and dimes in, it's like the, the Pharisees would take their coin jar and they'd go up to the, 
to the offering thing and they just like dump it all in there. And then all you hear is the sound of... It's like, wow, they must be giving a lot. You know, it's like they're just making a show of it, a pretense of it. Or when they, you know, when they do their righteousness before others to, to receive the accolades of men, Jesus says, if that's your motivation, then you have your reward. But if you're doing these things to be commended by God, then that is, that is the greater uh, reward. In the final analysis, that's what we should strive for. That's why Paul can tell the Corinthians that it's a little thing that he should be judged by them. Or to put it crassly, Paul is saying to the Corinthians, it's like, look, you don't sign my paycheck. <laughs> it's like, God signs my paycheck. Now, okay, in this case, Aaron signs my paycheck, but, you know, <laughs> that's not the point. Um, we should all want to hear the words from the Lord, right? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's the commendation we will receive from the Lord. Not from the Corinthians, not from men, but from God. The praise or commendation from men is indeed a small thing compared to when the Lord, when at the end, if you have lived a faithful life, He comes up to you and says, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Well, that's all I have for this morning. Of course, we're at, we're at time now. Uh, next time, Lord willing, next week, we'll look at verses 6 through 13.